Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Hey guys, welcome to the team house. We are here tonight with Ross Richel. Ross served in 3rd Ranger Battalion and is the author of The Knife, which is a novel about the global war on terror. Uh, we're really pleased to have him here tonight. He is also uh, getting his PhD at the moment. And um, we're going to get into all of it with him. It sounded like uh, he's in a pretty uh, hairy deployment to Iraq back in the day. And uh, I, I take it that was, or was it, uh, the inspiration for your novel, Ross? Yeah, well, I only had one deployment. So, yeah, if I had any inspiration in particular, that would have to have been it. Yeah, there was uh, a lot of tie-ins to the fictional work based off of personal experience. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'd say yes, long answer. <laughs> so, man, the, the first question we usually ask our, our guests is to hear their origin story. We'd like to hear a little bit about, you know, your background and your upbringing and sort of what that path was that led you into the Army. Yeah, well, um, so... I came from an affluent suburb just north of Chicago. Um, my high school is the same high school Donald Rumsfeld went to. Um, it's a school of 4,000. It's called Nutria High School. Uh, most kids go to college. Uh, if they go into the military, they're going to go the officer route usually. Um, and when I was a freshman in high school, the towers were hit. Um, and so, I was in my freshman uh, Spanish class when that happened. I remember it was, you know, a really sunny, beautiful day out and they canceled football practice that day. And I just remember, uh, like, wow, everything's changed, you know? And um, I grew up pretty insecure. I was the youngest in my class, but I was a good athlete and I always had a lot of friends, but didn't really ever like believe in myself. I was always super competitive with myself. Uh, I was internally motivated. Um, I, I never needed to be told to work out or anything. I was usually one of the first guys and last guys out of the gym and stuff like that. But um, I definitely was insecure. Um, so I looked to, um, I would say, pop culture or sports figures for motivation and um, stuff like that, like role models. And obviously the military was a very uh, salient point for me because when you want to talk about duty, um, pride, things that you can kind of build a persona around. Um, I, I, I was a big reader early. I read The Longest Day by Cornelius Ryan when I was in like fifth or sixth grade. 
Um, and I kind of tacked uh, on to the, the themes of brotherhood that I might have been lacking or maybe not feeling like I fit in, even though it looked like I fit in because I had friends and a good athlete. But I never really felt like I belonged anywhere, I felt like. Um, so I, I read a lot in the military. I had no family in the military. Um, a grandfather of mine served in the Merchant Marine during World War II. But before that, I had three relatives that fought for the Union in the Civil War. Um, one went missing and the other two were killed, one of which was killed by Sioux Indians. Um, in, he was with the 7th Cavalry, uh, 7th Iowa Cavalry, and he was killed by Sioux Indians in, uh, in uh, North Dakota or South Dakota, I can't remember. But um, his name was Marmaduke Betts. So pretty awesome name for a guy that was killed by Native Americans. Um, but anyway, so I did not have uh the kind of like classic military background lineage that wasn't it at all um in fact you know like i said um i grew up in an area where it was kind of like you go to college you know and uh, my parents really wanted me to try college and uh, i graduated from high school in 05. i was lucky enough and i'm aware of that i was lucky enough to take a year of college but uh, I was depressed there. I didn't want to be there, even though I know it was an opportunity that most people would be lucky to have. But there was a war going on. I had wanted to join when I was in high school. I had plans to be a Marine. Um, but Pat Tillman was killed in 2004. And I was a junior in high school when that happened. I played free safety. And Pat Tillman was a safety uh, linebacker in college. And so when he got killed, um, I, you know, researched him and read a lot about him. And he was a very impressive human being outside of his military experience, but then obviously to leave everything behind. Um, so I kind of started thinking about joining the Army um, instead of the Marine Corps after that. And after I had my first year of college, I got back home after my spring semester in May. And two days after getting home, I enlisted in the Army without telling anybody. Um, I came home. I was like, "Hey, I enlisted. I'm leaving soon." Um, and that was that was kind of it. And then I I went in there. Um, you know, again, I think a lot of people go in for different reasons. Everybody goes in for different reasons. Mine was definitely needing to prove myself to myself. I didn't mm -hmm. have to prove myself to anybody. It wasn't like I had a dad who's like, "You got to do this," you know, <laughs> or you can't come home. You know, it wasn't <laughs> like that. It was I I had that kind of personality for myself um again it tied into being insecure um you know for whatever reason that was um so i i you know i drank a lot in high school uh that's when i felt like confident i think was when i when i felt you know a little bit um less in my own head mm -hmm. so i saw the military especially um you know a combat experience would be a way to either <laughs> either prove myself or maybe get killed and not have to worry about it, <laughs> you know, because right. at that age, you don't really, you don't really have any perspective, yeah. you know? Um, but yeah, so then I, uh, actually, I was lucky enough to enlist with the RIP contract. So I got a contract for RIP, which is Ranger Indoctrination Program. Now it's RAS. Um, and I signed up for five years because the recruiter was like, well, you can't get a RIP contract without signing up for five, which of course, uh, the first day I was in the army, I met some dude with a RIP contract for two years. You know, and I was like, <laughs> I was like, dude, come on, this isn't a good start. But, um, no, it was cool. Um, I was the honor graduate in basic training. So, uh, they talked briefly about if I wanted to go to West Point or not, because I had a year of college. Um, I thought about that for about three seconds. And then I was like, no, I want to go to Ranger Regiment. 
So um, I kept in the pipeline, went to Airborne, and then I got into uh, Ranger Regiment in, I think it was April 1st or April 4th, might have been my first day, 2007. And our guys were deployed when I got there. So we had about three weeks, if my memory serves me correct, maybe three to four weeks where we were alone there without our guys. And when they came back, it it was on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was so a pretty pretty hairy experience. Yeah. So without without nine eleven, I mean, had I know you read a lot about the military, but did you yeah. have an inclination to go that way? Any way without nine eleven, do you think you would have gone regardless? It's a really good question. So again, the insecurity would have been there with whether or not there was a war. So I would have been, you know, a young, um, a young male in America who didn't necessarily know what to do. I knew I didn't want a regular office job. I remember really thinking that that would just maybe jump out of a window if I had, you know, go to go to a normal job for eight hours a day and just sit still because I I never saw myself doing that. Not that there's anything wrong with it, and I do it in a different way now anyway. But to me, I, you know, wanted to go to the NFL and I'm, you know, five, five, 10, 180 pounds. So that wasn't going to happen, especially playing defense. But like the idea of not doing something conventional has always been in me, you know? Um, and I think that when the towers were hit, I remember thinking I'm going and mm -hmm. I still had three years of high school. Left. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I didn't even want to take the ACT and I did not take the SAT. Mm -hmm. And I took the ACT once and I was like, whatever, like I, I was going to be a Marine. And then Pat Tillman got killed and I was like, okay, what did he do? And I started researching, you know, the Green Berets and I started saying, well, I'm going to be able to get into the war quicker if I go to Ranger Regiment. And, uh, that was kind of, that was kind of how it happened, you know? Yeah. Um, so would I have joined probably, yeah. uh, would I have felt the urge to join dropping out of college, which I did, uh, probably not. But then again, I, I was really depressed. Man. Like it yeah. wasn't my spot. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it, like now I'm getting a PhD. I've got three college degrees already. So clearly I like school, Right. but that, that it wasn't like I didn't like school. It was like my head game wasn't right. Sure. You know what I mean? It was wrong time, wrong place. And I'm sure the war going on didn't help because I was reading up on what was going on all the time. Being like, what am I doing here? I right. should be doing what guys are doing. You know what I mean? So, uh, good question. I think I would have ended up in the military. Top Gun was my favorite movie when I was a kid. Like, I rented it so many times from Blockbuster that <laughs> my, my parents were like, enough. Like, stop. Find something else. You know what I mean? Um, so, yeah, I, I think I wanted to be a fighter pilot early. But they told I heard that if my eyes were bad, I couldn't do it. So then I started immediately thinking about being a Marine because they had the best commercials when I was growing up. Oh, yeah. That's how you think when you think that way when you're oh, a yeah. kid, you know? And so, um, so I thought, and I'm a marketing major, so I get it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and so I was thinking about that. And then again, when Pat Selman died, it was like, all right, not being a Marine anymore, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, hopefully that answers your question. Marine, uh, Marine commercials are always, they've always been like, I, I think the word you're looking for is point. propaganda. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For it sure. works. I mean, hey, that's works. what it is. And so you finished RIP, and second battalion was full. So you went to third battalion. No, first bat was full. Second oh. bat was available. Uh, my, I had three best friends in RIP. Um, one of them went to second bat because he was a California boy. Um, the other one recycled out because he forgot 
one of his shower shoes on a 12 mile march so he had to recycle out and do it all over again and so me and me and my buddy uh from he was from maryland uh we were both like i went third bat and then the other california boy ended up coming to third bat with us um but first bat was the choice like you don't really i i didn't say hey i I want third bat for any particular reason other than it was closer to chicago than uh than second bat but first bat would have been it for sure yeah what was uh what was it like going through rip at that time frame? What was it, two thousand six that you went through? Two thousand and seven. Two thousand seven. Wait, no, no, I'm sorry. It, no, it was two thousand and seven. Yeah, it was two thousand and seven. Yeah, it was March of two thousand and seven. It was the the cadre were all, you know, E six, E sevens that had been on Tucker Gar and like, you know, <laughs> like the, the golden gods, you know, of of what we wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, I remember the first day at Rip, they had this big old beefy dude who, you know, looked like he could bench press a refrigerator, and he ended up just smoking us. He ran, like, 530 miles for, like, three or four. And I was like, who are these people? <laughs> you know what I mean? And so, like, so, and then we had another one who just had us lunge all day. Like we literally did lunges for probably 45 to 50 minutes and nobody could go to the bathroom after that. When you're trying to squat on the toilet, it was like, you weren't getting up. You either weren't going down or you weren't getting up. It was like, if you could just get there, you could sit, but yeah. your legs were dead. And so again, like that was a great indoctrination to your life. Isn't really going to be what you thought it was. And right. you're going to start figuring out some new things pretty quick. So Rip was interesting. Um, I went through with contacts. We weren't supposed to. And I remember one of the cadre looking like this. And he was like, Richel, you're wearing contacts, aren't you? And I was like, no, I'm not, Sergeant. And I was like, oh, dude, I'm totally wearing contacts right now. Because, like, my eyes are horrible. And I wasn't going to wear BCGs, which are, you know, birth control glasses or whatever. But he was like, I know you're wearing contacts right now. And I was like, no, I'm not. And I was totally was. But it was just like, he was scared every day. I remember the cadre coming in, like, at night when we were sleeping. And they're, like, spying on us. I was like, I was like, dude, where the fuck am I? You know what I mean? It was just, it was... It was, it was cool. Yeah, I mean, that's what I joined for. I joined for, I dug it. I totally dug it, you know? Um, yeah, it was a cool experience. I, re- I remember when uh, going through RIP, I went through 2003, and the instructors did like a health and welfare check of the barracks, you know, make sure we're, we're not Sounds getting good. into trouble. And and so they're like, if you got anything, come forward. If you have any contraband, you're not supposed to have. <laughs> and this is how young and naive I was. Uh <laughs> I, I had I had comic books. I had Batman mm-hmm. comic books in my locker, and you weren't supposed to have anything that's not like if it's not on the authorized list, it's unauthorized. Right. So I brought them my comic right. books. I'm like, Sergeant, <laughs> I have comic books, and they're like, look at it. And they're like looking at the comics, like Murphy, take these, get the fuck out of here. Like they were looking for like black tar <laughs> heroin. Right. And here comes this 19 year old kid with Batman comics. <laughs> like just go, just go, get out of here. That's pretty what, good. When the guys, uh, when your guys came back from their deployment, how were yeah. you received? I, I imagine that things were a little bit, be like I went in 97 in a, in a peacetime. So, you know, there's a lot of, you know, of the hazing and stuff like that. But I imagine that the things were a little bit more focused, right? When they came back uh, from you guys. Well, if you look at my face right now, this is pretty good. <laughs> um, it was. They were, they lost the guy. So uh, I, I actually had gotten a locker for a sergeant that passed away. 
uh, wow. Jimmy Regan passed away. Yeah, yeah. And so I actually got his locker, which is probably just a really raw deal. But that's what happens, you know. Um, but lighting it up a little bit, it was just the, one of the scariest things I read. Like all these guys, I remember they're coming out. I was like, holy shit. Like if you remember, if you played like, if you played sports at all in high school, you know, when you were freshman and saw the varsity go by, this would have been like for, I was a football guy. So if, if, if I was a freshman in high school and I saw Alabama's national championship team come in and I was trying to like have a lot for the next time, that's what it was like. And they're all like. They're like, what the fuck are you looking at? And I'd be like, I don't know, Sergeant. I'd be like, I'm a fucking private. Don't call me a sergeant. And I'd be like, oh, my God. Nobody's <laughs> wearing any rank because they're all in PTs. Right. I don't know who anybody is. You know, so it was uh, the first day when the guys were unloading their bags. One private who ended up being in my squad is a totally good dude. And another private ended up getting after it. And my squad leader when I first got there, it was like, fuck this, we're going to fight. So first day they took these two dudes down our whole platoon, went down to the combatives room and he goes, I'm not having you guys do this bullshit. Here are gloves. And right away they squared off and fought. And they're like, all right, now let's make all the hooahs do it. And I remember we were all just like, what? Like, are you really gonna make us like, you know, do this? And they didn't, but like, that was, that was the indoctrination. And those guys were dealing with stress. You know, like one of the guys, was sitting next to Jimmy Regan when he passed. Mm -hmm. And then the other guy, I mean, these guys just came back from a pretty raw deployment. So like, clearly they're all keyed up. I don't know about you guys, but when I got back from my deployment, we didn't have any like recovery time. I went from Iraq to Chicago in about 23 to 27 hours. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like I literally left Iraq and I was home with my girlfriend, who's not my wife, Mm -hmm. within a day. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So like when I saw these guys, when they came back, it was super raw, but I remember, yeah, they, they, they had them fight right in front of us the first day. It was just a lot of yelling, a lot of screaming, a lot of, you know, scrambling. Um, it was a, it was a very scary time. <laughs> I was to say that I was intimidated was an understatement. And, you know, I was always just sort of like, you know, uh, at rest or whatever. And they'd be like, what can you bench press like 300 pounds? And I'd be like, Yes, but I can tell that's not a good thing. Like, I don't know what to say. Like, I'm not going to lie to you, but yes, I can lift. It was just like anything they could find, they found it right away. And just, oh, man, it was super intimidating, you know. Um, But yeah, so the reception was not warm, rightfully so. uh, But I think it's super understandable given the circumstances, you know. And then how was that time for you where they start like integrating you, training you up? I mean, you're with all these guys who had, you know, had at least one tour, one combat tour under their belt. Um, How how was that for you? Well, so most of the guys that I was with probably had three of four easy. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, so I lost hearing in RIP. So I started having problems early in training where I couldn't necessarily hear very well on the comms. So training was great when we were doing PT because I could hang. You know what I mean? When we started going out, doing shooting drills and other stuff, I was behind. They would have to say things twice. And I would have to look around and be like, I think that's what they want me to do or where they want to go. So I started getting a reputation as being either stupid or slow pretty quick. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, like, guys who knew me, 
uh, I think liked me a lot, but I think guys that didn't, didn't have any necessarily reason to think that I was somebody other than the fact that I didn't mess up. Mm -hmm. I never had anything on my record. I never got in trouble or anything, but I probably looked like a guy who didn't know what he was doing. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so take that or leave it. How, how would you feel as an NCO when you're looking at a guy like me? You know what I mean? I can do everything right in certain ways. And in other ways, you'd be like, why aren't you getting this? You know what I mean? So that was kind of what was going on for me. Your you hair know? loss that started in RIP, was that due to uh, the, the explosions and stuff like that? or I had an earplug fall out when we were qualifying. And I was just like, I'm not, I don't care. Right. <laughs> I just kept going. You know what I mean? Uh, and so I was like completely deaf for like two days. It, it sounded like, you remember those? Like Charlie Brown Christmas, his, yeah. his mom like wah, wah, wah. like when I heard anything, it sounded like that. Yeah, and it was just horrible for two days. And I remember uh, my my best my three best buddies, and one of them had a name a last name right next to mine. So when we had to sound off our roster numbers, he'd be like that. He just hit me in the shoulder when it was mine, and I'd be like two two zero six. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because I I couldn't really hear what was being said mm -hmm. thankfully my hearing came back enough that like you know i i was able to kind of you know hide with however bad everybody else's hearing was you know what i mean mm -hmm. and then after my deployment it was really loud and stuff and they're like yeah you you can't have your job anymore or you can get out mm -hmm. i was like i'm getting out <laughs> so that was that was it yeah. What was it like then? I mean, now you're having to deal really with a with a what it is. It's a hearing disability, um, but also yeah. going through this train up, getting ready to deploy to Iraq. Yeah. Well, it was interesting. So I broke my ankle or fractured my ankle on a rope training um, about two months before we deployed. So not only did I have the hearing thing, and my ankle was all messed up, and I, they had me a boot. And I went to the doctor and there, I was like, am I good to go? He's like, well, you're, you're good to go when you think you're good to go. So I gave him the crutches right away and, and I was going because I really wanted to deploy, obviously. Um, so, yeah, I went in pretty gimpy. I realize it now. I, I, I definitely, um, I let myself, I let my insecurities probably be a pretty big liability. Uh, when I was on the objective, like, you know, it's it's hard to find out where fire's coming from anyway, but for me it was like it always seemed like it was three sixty. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because like to locate it, like how mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like it's just kind of echoing in my head everywhere, you know. Um, and I remember my ankle when I had to sprint and stuff. I'd feel it. I definitely wasn't ready, probably. But I mean, are you kidding me? I dropped out of college for that. Like I was going, I was right. going, <laughs> right? You know. Um, so yeah, sorry. I don't think I answered the question too well. No, no. Uh, I, I think I think you did. Just about your kind of train up for Iraq uh, and, yeah. and getting ready for that deployment. Yeah. So we were we were supposed to go to Afghanistan. So the the deployment was for Afghanistan, and they switched it like three weeks before. It was uh, there was like the big surge, you know what I mean, in Iraq, and there was a mini surge with JSOC heavy. And we were like the mini surge before the conventional surge. And so they switched us from our, uh, the Afghanistan plan. And I still remember like they brought our platoon in together and they're like, Hey guys, change of plans. We're going to Iraq. Everybody cheered. And I was like, yeah. And I was like, okay, whatever, <laughs> you know, um, because that was the war at that point, mm -hmm. you know, Afghanistan had quieted down a little bit and Iraq was the run and gun. 
you know what I mean? It was, you know, summer of 07 was when we were training up for it. And then it was, you know, fall football season. I still remember when Appalachian, Appalachian State beat Michigan was one of like that big upset in college football was like that happened right before we deployed. So um, that's when Iraq was really, really hitting on all, all cylinders. And so when they told us we were heading to Iraq, it was very short term um, and the guys just cheered and I hadn't been anywhere. I just wanted to go somewhere. You know what I mean? Right. So, um, yeah, it was, I, I was anxious. Um, I, I felt as ready as you could. Um, but I think the whole time, you're like, is it, what's it going to be like? You know what I mean? Am I going to, am I going to flake out? Am I going to be a pussy? You know, like all those things, you know, and, and well, you just what was your, what was your first impression when you stepped off the ramp of the plane, when you hit the ground in Iraq? First impression came before that first impression of Iraq was when the ramp dropped because that's when I could smell it. We were, um, we were, you know, we came into Biop, which is Baghdad International Airport. And it's actually funny because my girlfriend was like, just, you know, I didn't talk to her on the phone because everything was like, at that point, they were very into OPSEC. So, like, I had Facebook and they made me get rid of this. It was 07. I haven't had it since. But, like, so they made me get rid of it. You know, they instilled into our heads, like, you can't say anywhere on the phone. You can't say everything over, you know, computers or whatever. So, like, I was not going to mess that up. Mm. But I remember, like, the last time I saw my girlfriend before I deployed, I was like, hey, just so you know, change your plans. We're going to Iraq. And I was, like, looking around and making sure there were <laughs> microphones in my room. Right. But, like, and she's like, oh, God. And she was like, just tell me you're not going to Baghdad. And I was like, we're going to Biop. <laughs> of course, it's Baghdad International Airport. And she's like, oh, okay, I feel better. I was like, all right, sweet. Uh, some, some misinformation there. Um but anyway, so when the when the ramp dropped, it was the smell. It um, very very unique smell. And one of our sergeants, he just I remember him shouting out. He goes, "There it is, boys!" And and I just I, it smelled like rotten. It, it kind of smelled like rotten fruit. It was the burn pits, of course. It was mm-hmm. the burn pits with the heat, and it just smelled kind. Because of, again, like I, the countryside of Iraq is beautiful and it mm-hmm. smells really nice. But like the burn pits are toxic, A, and B, it just is is a horrible smell when you combine that with airplane exhaust and with humidity and heat. And so it was the smell first impression. And that's where I was like, I've never been anywhere like this before. You know, we flew in the middle of the night, landed at night. Um, I remember being petrified when we got all of our equipment onto like the little coach buses or whatever they were to take us to our tents because we, we drove through all of these barricades. And I just remember looking up and being like, anybody who just lobs a grenade over is going to take us all out right away. Like we're trapped, you know what I mean? And of course it was probably like super safe, but I just remember like all that anxiety driving through those little mazes of concrete walls. It was just like, where the hell am I, man? You know? Um, So it was pretty interesting. Yeah. And so you're at Biop uh jocking up for ops in Baghdad itself. I mean, what 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 was your platoon's mission? What were you guys briefed on uh what you were there to do? Um and again, I'm not getting like this is all fine, right? Like okay, yeah. Um so we were going after Iranian bomb makers. Um yeah, that's what we were briefed on. So 
uh, we were tasked with uh, identifying, apprehending, and eliminating uh, Iranian-backed bomb-making teams, basically. Um, yeah, and that, that took us where we went. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And something that's not like, it's been reported, but not widely reported. I mean, I'm looking at like Sean Naylor's book, he he wrote. There's like maybe a chapter about you know the about the JSOC task force going after Iranians and then getting stood down like multiple times. Yeah. Um, what what was your yeah, what was I, your experience? So you have to see this. I was a private. So again, whatever it, whatever uh, you know intelligence I was given was filtered out probably three or four times already. Right. You know what I mean. Um, so I was usually told where we were going right before it happened. And I didn't go a whole lot. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they don't usually take the new guys out all the time if they don't have to. Um, I was assigned a sniper overwatch team. So when I went out, I was primarily with them on rooftops, which is interesting because it's like, you almost feel like you'd be a little safer if you weren't <laughs> in an isolated four man team. But mm-hmm. like, that was really interesting. Um, so we had a couple of instances where we were ready to go uh and stood down um i remember one instance where they were like hey we're going to this compound it's remote it's isolated it's really big and then whether or not it was true or not we got intel that i guess some of the cooks in the compound had told people where we were going or that was a rumor and whatever got back to me and the guys that I was with was that the people were expecting us and they had everything zeroed in with mortars and they were just going to light us up right when we got off the the half, you know what I mean? Or the gaff or whatever. So they called down something like that. Um, Yeah. I mean, we tried to hit everything at night. Um, Obviously when you're going into more populated areas, you don't want to go in during the daytime because when you do, um it's more dangerous than when it is at night and it's not safe at night by any means anyway so um yeah (laughs) yeah what it was was interesting what were those first couple missions like for you just from an internal perspective like what did you think how are you feeling like did you feel like you had arrived with lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere this is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, so again, I just want to preface everything. I was not G.I. Joe. You know, I was a private and I didn't go on a whole lot. I went on, I went on a handful with the sniper overwatch team. And then I was traveling everywhere. The CSAR team was command search and rescue. So, um, when I was in there, I was leaving multiple times a day going outside the wire. Um, but when I was with the sniper overwatch team, that was a different kind of intensity because I remember feeling like when does, when do I go over the wire? Like I, you know, you, you read a lot about Vietnam, like you left the wire, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? It was almost like there wasn't a wire. Mm -hmm. It was like, you could get blown up at any checkpoint. 
You know what I mean? Anywhere you go, you could get fired at. So I remembered slowly, but also quickly realizing that it was on when the, you know, the missile defense systems would, would, would siren and go off while we were sleeping. And so the idea of being like blown up in your tent kind of like broke the cherry, so to speak, of being like, yeah, you're not safe really anywhere. Right. But um, that was a really cerebral experience was just the notion of being like you could get it at, at really any kind of any time. Right. You know, um, so I remembered feeling like everything went too fast, but it was going slow enough where I could operate if that makes sense. Cause the training is really good, obviously. And the adrenaline helps you focus. Yeah. Um, but I do remember it almost seemed like you were on one of the walking walkways at an airport a lot where you walk a little faster than normal and your, your footsteps sound a little too loud. And I remember, you know, like walking down the streets in Iraq in Baghdad proper and just being like the dogs are out barking and you'd look down an alleyway and see like, 300 pairs of cat eyes just staring at you and just being like, how are we not going to get opened up on from all of these windows mm -hmm. within like the next step or two? You know mm -hmm. what I mean? So it was just really like, like your breathing is too loud. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And your kit is too heavy, even though, you know, it's all tied down and taped mm -hmm. up because your sergeants check you and because, you know, they're mindful of it because they've done it for four or five deployments anyway. So it was really that, it was just like the intensity of of football, but you're not playing with a ball. You're playing with lives. You know what I mean? So yeah. it was just like everything was just turned up to a 10 all the time. And uh, the sensory stuff really is probably the stuff that I can still remember. I always, whenever I walk by construction sites now on a humid day, that's Iraq to me. Like yeah. I smell the dust and the heat and the moisture and that's what iraq smelled like to me mm -hmm. you know so it's like i can still remember it vividly i remember certain body odors very well <laughs> i remember you know i got a lot of flashbulb moments where you just kind of like yeah i remember that real well you yeah. know um so very intense to answer your question dave you know it was just uh being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because like every book you read is like, you know, you know, be careful what you wish for. You know what I mean? But that's totally what it is. It's like you, you, the stove's hot and yet how many people are still going to go touch it just right. to see? You right. know what I mean? It's like, it's still hot. And I think the idea of, of, of like, uh, you know, one of the, the movie props they use where you're going to smash the like action thing, I, that notion where that doesn't happen, it's just always kind of on. Right was the weird was the weirdest thing for me yeah there's no like okay go now it's for real that wasn't what it was like 
You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like playing football, and I'm not a football guy, but I my understanding of the premise of it is that it's putting the very best guys on that yard line at that yeah. moment, and they're going to play. Yeah. Maybe they're just going to play five seconds, three seconds in a play, but they're yeah. going to give 100% for that very short duration. Oh, yeah. You're seeing those thoroughbreds yeah. on the field. But you're saying your yeah. experience with war was the other way around, that it's this sort of like long-duration um, period of time we'll where – yeah, it's just it's just uh, I ran a marathon in 2016, and right, it was right. just like, hey, you you want you want to go beat yourself up for three or four hours? There you go. <laughs> it's, like, it's 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 like that, but it's day after day after day after day. And what happens, at least for me, is like you just don't care anymore. Right. You're just yeah. like, okay, this is it. You just become <laughs> something to it. Yeah. Yeah, and this this is it. You know what I mean? Like I remember flying like. I went from not flying at all to being on a CSAR team and flying two to three times every day, mm -hmm. you know? And when that happened, the first night we got a rocket shot at us. Mm -hmm. So like, the RPG was shot at us. And so we banked up like that, you know, and that was my first time in a bird or in a Blackhawk at least. And so it was like from that being the starting point, And then the next time you got in it and the next time and the next time and the next time, sometimes you shoot back at people. Other times you wouldn't. Sometimes you take a base of action, and it was just like eventually you, you fall asleep in the helicopter. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like eventually you just are tired, and so you don't care anymore. Whereas in the beginning, like you you won't sleep for a day after that because you're like, what just happened? Right. You know what I mean. But then it's it's just normal. You know, it's so, inter it's interesting. Yeah, and it's interesting how you said, you know, it's like everybody can tell you that stove is hot, but you're gonna touch it anyway, <laughs> and that's yeah, true. Yeah, for sure. That's true. And the thing is, is that had you not touched that stove, then you'd be sitting around today, do, you know, successful in whatever endeavor you were in going, I really wish I would have touched that stove. Was it really hot? <laughs> well, and, and that's the thing is I think a lot of, a lot of the things that drove me there in terms of like insecurities and stuff like that, um, obviously they're still with me. Like I didn't find security there. You know what I mean? Like I developed all the other different set of things <laughs> might've answered other things, but like, you know, um, I'm glad I did it because I did something hard. Right. You know what I mean? And I chose to do something hard and I take pride in that aspect of it. But I, I definitely talked to a lot of people who are like, yeah, like I, I wanted to do it and I didn't. And, and, um, and I don't judge that because I get it. And I was scared shitless when I was there, <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's not like I can judge somebody for that, but but yes, if I hadn't done it, Dave, I would have to this day been like, I wonder how hot that stove was. Mm -hmm. And then if I had talked to somebody like me, I'd be like, it's fucking hot. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's really hot. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's kind of what it's like. You yeah. Know? As this deployment went on, did you have any sense uh, or did you guys, did the task force have any sense of uh, that you were rolling back these IED cells, that you were kind of making a difference? Um, good question. You probably have to talk to the command guys that I mean, I, again, so like my, the beginning of my deployment was on a line with sniper overwatch and then I went to CSAR. So it was almost like I went from my specific set to every time JSOC flew any mission in Iraq, I was flying. Mm -hmm. And so it was like, instead of knowing what was going on anymore, we just knew whenever something was going on, right? Right. because whether it was, whether it was green, red, or blue, we were flying you know what i mean and so it didn't matter who it was we were flying you know what i mean and so 
Uh, the Air Force guys, the PJs were awesome. Like, I really, really, really liked working with the PJs. They're super bright, super, I mean, the guys that I were with were super bright, super nice, uh, very, very professional, very interesting and unique. Um, I don't know how much of a difference it made. I know, you know, the, the mission in Saturday City that I was on, we did not catch the guy that we were trying to catch, but we got into a whole lot of trouble That's- anyway. Yeah, let's yeah. let's uh, go into that mission. I'd really like to hear about that. Uh, where you know the Ranger Regiment and the SEALs, one of the, what are the SEAL team guys? You you guys had a team up going into Sadr City. Um, so I was wondering yeah. if you could tell us about that. Yeah. So um, I haven't talked about this. I was about you know I was told everything's classified or whatever, but like yeah, pass. I don't think I'm gonna get in trouble for it. But so it was actually the anniversary. It was two two days ago. So um, on the 20th, I believe, or 21st of October, uh, we were trying to find a Iranian bomb maker in the area of Sadr City, Iraq. And we were ready to go around midnight. It was a gap, which is round. Um, so we were taking strikers in. Um, we were ready to go at like midnight and they kept pushing back the time because they were waiting to get the go call, you know, and they kept pushing back the time and they were waiting to get the go call. And we got the go call at about 4.30 in the morning. Oh, wow. And I remember we were like, well, are we going? Like, this is Sadr City. Right. And it's 4.30 in the morning. And everybody's looking at their watch. And the sun is starting to come up, basically, as we're about to go into the strikers. Right. And so I just remember, like, well, they're going to call it off. You know, <laughs> <laughs> They're going to call it off. Uh, they're going to call it off, right? And they're like, no, they didn't call it off. Uh, so we went in strikers, um, and, uh, my, my first squad leader who, who cycled out to become a weapons squad leader, uh, was actually the, the gunner on the striker. And I remember a lot of the speed and when you're a striker, you have to kind of use your core and your legs to kind of like balance yourself. Cause it, you get speed in those things they are so powerful. It's not like you're sitting like this, like you get kind of jostled around. And I remember I, I, I could feel how fast we were going based on how much I had to tense myself. And then my squad leader just starts opening up and he's in the turret and he doesn't have a 50 and he just, he's using his, he's using his M4 and he's just, and we're still driving at a high rate of speed. And then I start hearing all these things hitting the side of our, our striker. And it sounds like, you know, what you hear about where it sounds like hail hitting the side and it's a bing, 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 bing. and we were getting shot out with AK rounds or whatever. And so, uh, we were taking fire probably for about a minute or two, uh, before we even stopped. And when we did stop, we went from however fast we were going to stopping. And so all of a sudden we stopped, door goes down and I'm the first dude off. This is my first taste of combat. And I am the first guy off and I'm just like, like this and i right away i see you know an, an old woman and three kids like chewing their kids inside and i'm like looking around like trying to get ready to engage or whatever and like ritual ritual grab the ladder and like so i forgot my job was to help grab the ladder for sniper overwatch thankfully i did the right thing with my training which is like you know get up and be ready to engage right but yeah like i had to like go back into it so i'm the first guy off and like, and so I have to go back uh, into into the striker and grab the ladder, and we needed the ladders to scale into the compound. So thankfully, we got them all. 
it, but uh, Ross, I got Ross, out. just to yeah, understand yeah. The, the composition of the team. I mean, was at this point the mm. operation was just Rangers, or were the Seals embedded, or did they come later? How did that work? No, we were uh, we were cast up evenly. I think I had I might have had three Seals with me because again, I was I was the sniper Overwatch. Okay. So, so we this I was under the impression that this was a kind of sampling where they were having for really kind of the first times you were having two different JSOC elements doing DA together. Mm -hmm. So we were training together to go on the objective together. Okay. Like, you know, and so that's like the composition of the force was something like, you know, a platoon of Rangers. And then I think it was like maybe two squads of seals from seal team to our time. And, and so like, I think I had the seal CO and I, uh, striker and I think he had like two guys with him or whatever and I, I might be wrong and I can't really remember but I remember that's kind of how it was split up um, and then you probably had um, the line squads and ranger regiment all in one you know what I mean but like for me I was on sniper overwatch so I was with my two sniper sergeants and the other the other specialist that was with me um, and then the rest of the guys in there were you know seal guys um, and uh, so that was that was the composition of it if that answers your question yeah I think we probably had five or six, probably five or six strikers. Um, and so, yeah, like I was the first guy off when I got off, the dust was still settling. Like this was not a gentle exfil. This was a hot exfil. This was a fast exfil. And then um, we were in Saturday, the sun was up. Uh, we had to go to a, the objective was a schoolhouse. So it was a big, big compound in the middle of, you know, Sider City and uh, everybody and their mother knew we were there and uh, they came and we scaled the walls. We cleared the compound. The target was not there, but the people that came were there in force. And the CSR team that I was tasked out to for the rest of the point were seeing the mission um, in a talk that was not in BIOP. So like people, I guess, heard about this mission pretty far away and uh general mccrystal mentions it in his biography um and so it was a mission that was kind of said to be like little mogadishu um and, and you know everybody kind of like hollywood's everything anyway but i do remember when it got back you know one of the the, the squad leaders was like you motherfuckers like he was just he was he was like jealous that he wasn't on it you know yeah. what i mean so and for me, it was just like, I remember being like, is that how everything is? And they were like, no, <laughs> that's not how everything is. And it was, you know, it was, it was just really, it was very scary. It was very overwhelming. Um, you know, it was sobering. It was, it was, I looked at my watch at one point, it was 6.30 in the morning. And I remember just being like, I'm getting shot at on my diet here. And my buddies were probably, you know, like having a good time together in college or whatever i was like what did i do yeah. like what did i what was i thinking yeah. you know what i mean um, what, what did happen so, yeah. when you got to that schoolhouse you guys secured the objective and then what the mongolian horde just comes down on you guys it was just uh it, it was just a we need to get out of here quick yeah it, this is bad we're not going to be able to hold this um so they actually called in helicopter gunships they called in a tank um they had the strikers knocked down at least my striker knocked down the compound wall dropped its door so we ran in 
to striker uh we were there for about an hour and a half um they started engaging targets with the helicopter gunships and you know there was uh you know the <laughs> Uh, you know the the civilian casualties were you know reported in the press which is awful um that was hard to deal with because you know it was all over the news before we got back right like we got back to the compound and it was already on cnn you know what i mean and and um you know like listen i i i'm a i'm a softy at heart you know mm. like i didn't want to kill the wrong people or being i didn't kill anybody you know, but I was part of it and, you know, I had to take people off and, you know, isolate people or whatever. And so that was one of those things where we didn't have a scratch, like mm -hmm. literally nobody in our element took any kind of wound, mm -hmm. but to see the, but to see what we dealt out was really pretty intense. Like, you know, the, the first, the first counts were over a hundred. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And then as the reports and the press came out, it was anywhere from like 49 to 76. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And of course, my thing, most of those counts were there were reports of civilian casualties. Mm -hmm. And so I'm thinking the higher totals might be true because the locals might not want to count combatants, but the civilians might be legit, you know, or whatever. But anyway, it's just, it was one of those things where like, it, it just shows you how, how, bad things can get how quickly they can get it um and uh yeah it was it was one of those things where it's like hey you want the war here it is you know what i mean and and it was really crazy because after we were leaving the objective an ied went off and it was like all this noise all this noise i and i remember the detritus fell through the open hatch and it kind of like sprinkled down like confetti and then it was just quiet mm -hmm. And it was, that was it, it was over. Mm. And we drove back quietly for 30 minutes. And then the guys had like spicy chorizo burritos. And I went and worked out and called my girlfriend. And then she goes, hey, this is the only time, the only time the whole deployment she asked me, she goes, hey, I just saw something on the news. Was it you? And I was like, nope. <laughs> and, then right when I, and then right when I saw her, like in person, I was like, you were right. Like that was, that was us. And she's like, yeah, I had a feeling. You know what I mean? Yeah. She was like, I didn't, I didn't watch the news or look at it at all when you were gone. And that one day I saw it and I had a really bad feeling. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, well, you're a smart lady. It was intense. Yeah. I think for maybe the people who aren't aware of sort of what Sodder City was and, and why that name is kind of mythical, I guess. Um, it, it, you know, it's an area in Baghdad or, you know, but, but can you describe like what Sadr city is like and why going to Sadr city and especially like at four 30 in the morning, why, yeah. why that's particularly harrowing? Well, you know, the, the term slum is a, is a really, you know, derogatory word in my opinion, because people live there and make a living there and people die there. Um, but what that is meant to, to, to describe is a lot of dwellings that are not necessarily structurally sound mm -hmm. packed together combined with a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So that's what Souter city was like, at least where I was at. Um, it's a population dense area with a lot of little, you know, corners and small spots to hide and whatnot. Um, and 
going there at night again, you would you would be overwhelmed quickly um, if if there was a, a large engagement. Um, and when you're going door to door, house to house, you usually try to go in silently so you don't wake up the neighbors. Um, and uh, so when we went in during the daylight hours, everybody knew we were there. So if anybody wanted to come fight, which they did, they can do it, you know, and they know the area. We don't. So it's almost like, you know, think about your hometown. Like if your hometown is like, hey, they're at the football stadium. Well, guess what? You know, 20 different ways to get to the football stadium. You know what I mean? And then you can get there quick, you know? And so um, the schoolhouse was like a three or four story. And I remember just like, you could see rooftops everywhere. And so it was just like, they could they could come at you from any angle. Right. You know what I mean? And so right. it was just like, it was, it wasn't a good spot to be in. You know what I mean? And yeah. clearly it wasn't really for an hour and a half. And it was literally like, I don't think we had any intervals of quiet during the whole hour and a half. It was just constant, you know, small arms. And then, you know, and larger, you know, armaments and whatnot. And the 50 cows were just like, doo, 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 doo. like it was, it was just, it was just really intense. Um, you know, we were very lucky. And again, like, you know, hearing, hearing about civilian casualties, you know, it's, it breaks your heart. Like, obviously I, I, I don't stand for that. You know, I'm against that. But at the same time, it's like, how the hell would that not happen? Right. You know right. what I mean? Like when that kind of stuff is getting thrown around. Right. Daylight, daylight hours before people go to work. Right. Before people go to school. It was a Tuesday, I think. Like, I mean, it was just like, man, you know, it was just a total shit show. You know, and I, I just don't know how we didn't take any. We didn't get a scratch, dude. Like, yeah. Not a scratch. Well, it was really, really overwhelming. Yeah. Muqtad al-Sadr, like, he, he was a thorn in the U.S. side the entire time because he would, you know, he had the Jaysh al-Mahdi, right? Uh, the, the, and they were kind of bunkered in Sadr City. Mm -hmm. And they would yeah. conduct operations against U.S. forces. And then any time yeah. the U.S. started to press him, he'd go, whoa, I'm just a simple cleric. I'm a religious yeah. man. And, the, you know, the U.S. would back off and go, okay, all right, you're a religious man. And he had political pull. And so it was this constant for years. I mean, since the beginning of the war almost, uh, you know, it was this constant accordion with him and, and yeah. you know, his forces. Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, nothing's, nothing's easy in any war. But, I mean, you know, just like you see what's happening in Afghanistan now, it's like, man, there's so many different ribbons and ties to everything. And right. It's a big quilt that, that we didn't make. Right. It's not you know uh so we don't even know what's going on but then we go in there and start shifting things and we start you know if there's a if there's 10 or 20 or 100 different themes going on before we even set up shop when mm -hmm. we set up shop it's a thousand you mm -hmm. know you've got so many different narratives going on and mm -hmm. so it's just like wow you know like i remember like when we were on the objective sometimes like how do we even know these are the right guys? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, just because this is the Intel, where do we get the Intel from? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, you know what I mean? It's like that kind of thing. Like the Intel might be great, but it might be given by somebody who's got a bone to pick with you. Right. You know what I mean? Like, right. It could be, yes, we got the guy who we wanted to get, but wait a minute, is that even the right guy? Right. You know what I mean? Like, you right. know what I'm saying? So it's just kind of that thing where, where it, for me, it was it was overwhelming to see stuff and not be able to think like, wow, 
this doesn't seem like it's going to end well. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I, I, you know, it was hard to be like, this is a winnable war mm-hmm. because, and I think, I think, you know, that's what's going on a lot with Afghanistan right now is like, you know, um, in my opinion, it's like you can be in a conventional force, you know, a JSAC force, whatever your job was. And in your little war, you can feel like you're winning or you won Mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. But that's just one slide of the movie. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. so it's really weird to look at it like that and be like, you really don't know what's going on or if you're really making a difference. Because again, like you could, I mean, you could do everything right, and we still pulled out of Iraq, and we still pulled out of Afghanistan. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. ISIS came in after Iraq, and our Taliban's in control. So it's just mm-hmm. like, wow! Like, we help protect and grow everything you've worked so hard to build. We are Acrisure. It's not surprising to see that a lot of people have really hard uh, feelings mm-hmm. about certain things. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, I think what people just need to do is be like, hey, you know, you 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 did what you could. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And hopefully you feel pride in the effort of it. Mm-hmm. And and I've seen a lot of anger and I get the anger. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, like if, if I, I never got the BGI Joe cause my, my service ended pretty quick, but I have, um, you know, taken like solace in the fact that I did something hard right. and I did it to the best of my ability. And that's like, that's, that's me. That's it. You can't, you know, this isn't a script. The stove's hot. Right. You know what I mean? Like right. people get burned down. You right. know what I mean? So right. it's like, I think people come into a lot of things with expectations. You know what I mean? And Mike Tyson said, you know, everybody's got a plan until they get hit in the mouth. You know what I mean? And it's like, that's, that's life. Yeah. You know? Um, so yeah, I don't know. It was a really, you know what? I felt like a journalist now that I look back on it because I had one deployment and it was pretty intense. And then I was like sucked back and that was it. Mm-hmm. Never gotten normal for me. Mm-hmm. Never gotten normal for me. Mm-hmm. My, my, one of my best buddies, is, I think he's had like 14 deployments and he read my book and he was like, how the hell did you remember so much stuff? He's like, I can't remember that much. And I've done it like 11, 12, 13 times. And I was like, well, good question. And I was like, I think it's because I only did it once. Right. And so it, it, it never stopped being outrageous to me. Right. You know, it never got normal. Right. Like, that's what you think about. Like these, anybody, it never got normal. Anybody who's done it for a couple of times, but even guys who were just like, you know, think about it. If you're in Afghanistan or Iraq for like 18 months, <laughs> that is crazy. Right. You know what I mean? But if you've had like, five to ten deployments it's like things got normal for you after a right. while and everything you know just bleeds I mean? However, together yeah exactly and for me it didn't it right. felt literally like i put my head in a wind tunnel and then all of a sudden it just got sucked back out and i was like what was that all about yeah you know what i mean and so yeah it was a really weird experience so yeah. you're kind of saying guy, like I'm sorry. I was going to say that. So you're kind of saying like a guy who has slept with one woman is really going to remember all the details of it. And a guy who slept with a hundred women is going to be like, ah, I don't even remember her name. I don't remember what color hair she had. There's probably a couple of professional athletes that you have to run that by. Yeah. Yeah, I I would not be one to speak that my wife's my lady, but yeah, I think that you're probably right about that. I'll tell you what, 
I've got five kids, so I can tell you as a parent, that is a, <laughs> is a notion I understand. You can say, oh my God, I remember all these diaper changes. I'd be like, dude, I've changed 3,000 diapers. They are yeah. all the same. I have <laughs> yeah, no right, idea. Right. You know what I, mean? I can <laughs> diagnose. I can diagnose any food they've eaten based on smell, but it doesn't faze me. I get poop on my fingers every day, and that's just what happens. And that's it. You know what I mean? Before so. uh, before we move on, was there any other significant <clears throat> events from that uh, deployment that you think we should touch upon before moving on? Yeah, um, I I think it's important to talk about the people there, um, and you know, uh, I I think you know I I took pride in trying to be a good human being when I was there. Um, I didn't buy into the fact that they were evil. Or that um, I, I tell people a lot, like I, I kind of looked at it as like, hey, if I had not been born where I was, I probably would have been on their side. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like take take my age, my demographic and put me in the Middle East and I might have been fighting against us. So like if you can look at war that way, things that are binary and very simple and black and white become very gray and very hazy. And that's where I think you need to sit. You need to think about war and that haziness, because when you think about right and wrong all the time, it gets really, really, really shady really quick because I saw things that I'm not proud of. I saw things that didn't sit well with me and I got a hell of a lot of buddies that do too. And so it's like, if you can just kind of say like, war's messed up because war's never the same and it's always different for everybody and everybody is reacting with very primal instincts mm. things that shouldn't happen happen you know what i mean and and i think you're looking at a lot of like the you know eddie gallagher stuff and seal team stuff and it's just like there's a lot of things that happen that aren't going to get play you know what i mean and so it's just like you know have some humility mm. you know try to not you know have your chest bowed up all the time and act like you're hot shit all the time because what's that really gonna do um and also, like, I didn't go to Afghanistan. I really wanted to. But have you guys seen pictures of that? Like, these are beautiful places. Mm. You know, beautiful places with really strong people. Um, Iraq was just gorgeous, man. Like, <laughs> when we were flying back from missions or to them and the sun was going on or coming up, you'd pay people to do that. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, it was just some of the prettiest stuff you've ever seen in your life. You know, and it's just... It's just really crazy to think about, you know, my insecurities drove me to that kind of insecurity. It was a lethal insecurity. You know what I mean? So I think it's really important for people to just try to, to figure out who they are and what they want out of life because life's good. And if you don't think it is, you go see some people who are dead and shot in the face. It's not pretty. You know what I mean? Like seeing dead kids is not fun. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like I remember one time we were flying at night and uh, you know, I, I could see for miles out on the horizon because we were in the desert and all of a sudden this light comes out like a lightsaber. And I was just like, what's that? And it was infrared and you know, I'm a nods on it. And so all of a sudden the thing was down and then, and so the house got blown up you know and in the middle of the desert and within six seconds the whole thing was gone so if i hadn't seen it, it you know what i mean if i hadn't seen it it's like 
but people still died. Right. <laughs> Whoever was in there was still gone. Right. But I remember looking at the guy who was sitting next to me on the bird and he saw it too. And we both go, whoa. And the guy sitting behind us in the door had no idea what happened. Mm. It's like the war was going on all around us. Mm. You know what I mean? And then other times they'd see like one camel walking by all by himself. Mm. And it might like, that's how it was in biblical times. It was just like, just so many highs and lows, you know what I mean? And it's just like, it's really crazy. You know, um, one time we picked up a guy uh, in a suit and he didn't say a word to us. And we picked him up in like dirt. We dropped him off on marble floor. I have no idea where he was. We dropped him off on a place in the middle of like a palace. And there was a green marble floor that we landed on in a, in a, in a black hawk. So there's just so many weird things going on all the time. And it's very disorienting and it's very weird and um yeah i mean i again i I was lucky you know i i got i got shot at a couple times and um that was it (laughs) you know i mean and i i think i i didn't i didn't do it long enough to hate anybody i didn't do it long enough to stop being a good person um you know when we went into an objective and there were little kids crying i would wave at them and try to make them happy because it made me sad Mm-hmm. I didn't want them. I, I had an American flag on my shoulder. I didn't want to be a bad guy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So like, that's like, that was my war. You know what I mean? Um, I wasn't one of the guys who would bash, you know, a guy's head in as we were putting him into a striker. You know what I mean? It's odd though. You yeah. know, like it happens. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. I don't know. And when you guys got back home after all the, all this mayhem, um, did, and things continued with your uh, with your hearing loss. Did you have to be yeah. medically boarded, or, or you said they gave you an option like go find another job, or or you're going to lose your so position? I, I got I got med boarded out. Um, they they told me my hearing was not good enough to stay on the line, mm-hmm. um, and I'm it's kind of it was kind of funny because um, they told me I could have a job, and I I remember thinking I had a couple of interesting experiences where the first sergeant like took me in his pickup truck to go to a shooting range and i just talked to him for like 45 minutes about my life and he was asking me probing questions about what i wanted to do and i told him i wanted to be a psychologist because i was like a psych undergrad or whatever and and now the work that i'm trying to do now is is kind of analogous to that even though i want to still be a psychologist um and I realized now he was probably filtering me to see if I was a dirtbag or not. You know what I mean? Because he didn't know me. Right. And he would have been the guy who was like, no, I'll put him in, you know, wherever, or like send him out to the right. So, like, again, I think being genuine is really important. Um, you know, my <laughs> I had a, my sergeant when I left SECO, they were doing the exit interview. He's like, all right, Rachel, like, you know, what are you hoping to do? And I was like, I just want to be happy, Sergeant. Like, fuck, why did I say that? And he, at and, and he, and he looked at, and he looked at me, and he just goes, "Okay, man." <laughs> and, that, and that was it, you know, because it was, it was depressing. Yeah, I was really depressed. Like, I, I didn't want to leave. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to be, you know, the guys who went to Delta Force, and there were a handful of guys that I worked with that went to Delta Force. You know, what I mean, it's like you have goals for yourself and you have all these expectations and then life hits you, you know, yeah. or your, your, your plug falls out and you can't hear anymore. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's what happens, you know, and you got to drive on and 
Uh, and again, I've had a lot of low moments too. So like guys, it's, it's just kind of normal. You know what I mean? To, to, to say what now, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've had that a lot, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah. So that was it. Uh, I got med boarded and then I had a couple of fishy encounters where I guess I passed whatever test the guys were, were putting me for to see if I was, you know, worth letting go or not. And, and they all seemed to be like, Hey man, good luck to you. My first sergeant told me, he goes, Hey man, nobody can ever take this away from you. And that was really cool to hear from a first sergeant because I felt really like I had failed. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like I felt like I, I, my, okay. So I went in feeling like I had a lot to prove to myself. Like mm-hmm. I had mentioned and I had all these like, you know, insecurities or anxieties going on, going into the process of it. And so getting out with an injury that wasn't like a gunshot <laughs> or like, you know, a horrible injury, but having something that people can't even tell, like maybe not even believe that I have, it's just like, really, you had to get that. That was what what, what took you out. That was you know uh, I mean? that was really nice of him to say, though. Um, a lot of guys, oh, yeah. um, unfortunately, didn't get that treatment. Who, who was your first sergeant at that time? I was going to say, can I say it? Yeah, uh, Leslie Shepard. What's yeah? Uh, no, I, I'm afraid he, I don't know him, but sounds like a good guy. Really, really, really nice person. Yeah. Um, yeah. That meant a lot. Cause you know, like it would have been easy to listen to some of the guys who were like, you're fucking faking it. And there's other guys who are like cool about him. Like, yeah, I'd get out too. If yeah. I couldn't hear, you know what yeah. I mean? But like, you, that's just how it is. You know what I mean? Like I, I can't, you know, my, my three, my three boys, you know, um, have like kind of speech issues. You know, I, I can't, I can't hear what the hell they're saying half the time. You know right. what I mean? It gets garbled. It's hard for me to differentiate what you're saying. And so obviously right. when you're on an objective and it's pretty important to hear what you are being told to do, that's a, that's a liability. You know what I mean? And so like, I think it took me a long time to even understand that you could show me where my hearing was at on a chart yeah. and where it needed to be. But to me, it was still just like, God, you're such a pussy. And I'm like, whoa, what? Why did I say that? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, it's just, that's, I guess that's my personality. You know what I mean? And other guys probably like, yeah, that's just what happens. But for me, it was just different. So yeah, hearing that from my first sergeant, you see a lot of different leadership styles mm-hmm. and you can tell when somebody's a good leader and when they're just good at their job. There's yeah. a big difference in my opinion between somebody being a stud on the objective and being a good leader. You know what I mean? Like you can be really, really good on the objective or you could be a good leader or you can be both. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, you don't have to be one or the other, but you can tell who's got it. Who does it well, you know, just based on that. You know? It's it's like you say though, hearing is one of those things because like everybody, everybody says, um, I don't have good hearing. Like uh, I'm kind of deaf. Yeah. Right, right. Like sometimes you go, cause I, I have s- similar issues and you know, sometimes I'll tell people if I'm not wearing my hearing aids, I'll go, Hey, I'm, I'm hearing yeah. impaired. I'm sorry that I keep on, making you repeat yourself and people go, or or I'll go, Oh, I'm sorry. I kind of hard of hearing you. And they'll go, yeah, me too. And it's like, no, like I'm really hard of hearing. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like, yeah. And it's weird too. Cause like I got hearing aids from the VA um, and they're great. The Oticons. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if you have this problem or not, but like I get in a lot of pain with my, my hearing uh, when the noises are loud. Like, I feel like I'm on a puke. So I get really bad headaches a oh, lot. Oh, really? No. And, 
And so I don't wear my hearing aids really because especially with kids, like, you know, they'll, they'll scream really loud. Right? Right. It's almost like a little IV goes off like right. this. And so it's like, it almost hurts too bad to have my hearing aids in. So now it's like, especially with a mask, it's really hard because right. I got yeah. used to, to, yeah. to, to putting the lip movement with what I thought you were saying. And, and that was nice. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And now it's hard, but like, yeah, like I don't even really wear my hearing aids because it's, it's more uncomfortable for me to hear those loud sounds or high pitched sounds that make you, it kind of feel like you're jabbing something into my brain than just asking people to repeat themselves right? or just be like, I didn't really catch what they were saying, but I think I know what they were saying. Right. You know, like that kind of thing. You just yeah. nod and smile like, a lot. Yeah. And yeah. that's the thing too. It's like some people you might not have that much interesting stuff to say. Right, right. <laughs> and so you just kind of let it go, you know? Yeah. But, uh, Talk to us yeah, about uh, talk to us about the origins of your your novel, The Knife. Like, how did that idea yeah. kind of uh, percolate in the back of your mind and come into being? Well, it's interesting because again, like OPSEC, so operational security was so thick when I was there. I didn't I didn't take a picture while I was there. I didn't write down a word. So I went from not being somebody who did anything but read to writing a book and. The reason I did that is because my wife, like I was a, I was finishing up my uh, my undergraduate degree in business after I got a Ranger Regiment and I had finished all my business classes and I was going to my senior year and I was like, great, I finished all this business education and I'm realizing I don't want to go into business at all. I was like, what should I do? Mm-hmm. And she's like, well, you're reading all the time because I would take the train, the class, you know, into Chicago from the suburb where you're at. And so I was reading for about three to four hours every day. So I was going through a book every like two to three days and she's like, well, you read so much. Why don't you try writing? And so I was like, okay. (laughs) So I just started writing and uh, that was the story that I needed to tell, you know, that was, you know, I mean, when you get back from, from whatever you do or see in the service, it's different for everybody. But I obviously had a lot in my head or a lot of thoughts about it. Um, And so I just started writing a little bit and then I kept writing a little bit and I kind of got addicted to it. And I think I have a more addictive personality than not. And so it's kind of like a, instead of a workout program, it's like a mental workout program. You know what I mean? Where it feels good after a while and, Mm -hmm. you know, you torture yourself and you think you suck at it. It's like, you just keep going and then you feel better and better. And it just starts to feel good. The same way a marathon can feel good and you're like, you're a psychopath. It's like, no, it's, it, it gets there. It gets sweet. You know, that's how writing is like it, it can be cathartic after you do it. So, um, I ended up, um, getting into an MFA program at Northwestern university and uh, I had written a whole first draft of my book before I even got in there. And then over that time, I, I use a GI bill for that, which is sweet. I mean, the GI Bill has got to be one of the most revolutionary uh, social <laughs> socialist uh, instruments that our, our country affords um, its citizens and those who have served, which is just a great thing. Um, and so I used that to get my MFA. Um, and then I was working a job I did not like in advertising sales when my first son was born. And my wife, again, was like, well, you've got that book. Why don't you write that at work? And so I just revised and rewrote at work. And then I submitted it, uh, literary agent at Inkwell Management, William Callahan liked it. And uh, he signed me. We ended up getting a book deal that was my salary. 
uh, for an advance and I quit my job. <laughs> that that's fantastic. That. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. And it, yeah. And it lasted for a year and then the money ran out and we had to go get another job. That's like, <laughs> you know I mean? So, you know, that's it, you know, but you're lucky sometimes we got lucky and then we just had to go hustle again, you know? So that's kind of how it is. But yeah, I mean, again, I think a lot of people should write uh, because it helps you order your thoughts. Um, from a therapy standpoint, it's super helpful to write about things that you're thinking about a lot. Um, it's, it's, it's a very cathartic experience. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to write, you know, just because you had some issues you want to think about. It's just a good way to order yourself in a, in a fast paced world where not a lot of things make sense to be honest with you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so that's what I'd say. Yeah. That was kind of the process. I used to, I used to write in the early stages with, my combat boots on and I would have a dip in and I would write at night because I wanted to kind of channel what I was feeling. Right. I would listen to the playlists. I listened to the playlists and the music that I would listen to over there, you know, and I, and then I ended up getting diagnosed with PTSD in 2015. So like, as my book was getting published, I, I got diagnosed with PTSD. And so I was like, well, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> you know what I mean? like, I was, I was basically like making myself think about it, making myself think about it, making myself think about it. And then I was like, God, I'm not okay. You know? <laughs> and so yeah, that happens. You know, And again, you can't, I mean, you can't, um, can't be ashamed of it. You know, like I kind of look at it like, Hey man, I, my, I kind of had, you know, experiences that made me say, I don't agree with that. You know what I mean? And so it's like, instead of looking at it again, like a pussy, it's like, no, man, you're a good person. You know what I mean? Like you had problems with some shit, mm. you know what I mean? And your heart kind of revolted at certain things. And so I'm proud of that in a lot of ways. Cause I'm like, even though I was, you know, like I, I would see, I could see a guy at my feet who had taken a couple rounds to the face. And when that happens, the, the, the structure of the face crumples in on itself. So mm. it's very interesting because they almost don't look like a human being anymore. You know what I mean? That didn't bother me. I was ready for it. You know what I mean? So I would keep the dip in, you know what I mean? But then I'd see a dead little boy in a corner like this. Wouldn't even see his face. He was just like like this with his head, with his hand up and his head to the wall. And then I'd see, you know, my firstborn son sleeping like that in a crib. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I'd just be like, fuck. And that was the time when I saw it, I had to take my dip out for that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's like, those are the things where my heart would revolt. And I'd be like, I am not okay with that. You know what I mean? And so it's almost like if you can look at, you know, a PTSD diagnosis as a defect that no, man, that's, that's, that's you coming through. That's the humanity coming through the chaos and mm -hmm. saying, let me out. This isn't right. Mm -hmm. You know? So it's like embrace that part of yourself. Say, you know, I, I, it's not that I can't take it. It's that I'm not meant to take that. Mm -hmm. I can take the seeing people shot in the face thing, mm -hmm. but they got to be of age. Right. You know what I mean? Right. When you have the thing that's not okay, good. You should have a problem with that. And if you don't, that's when you need to worry about stuff. So you know what I mean? That's my that's my opinion on it. You know what I mean? So yeah. So you 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 were discharged in was it two thousand eight, two thousand nine? Two thousand and eight. Okay. Yeah. May May two thousand and eight. And then yeah. and then it was two thousand fifteen when you were diagnosed with PTSD. Yeah. I, I, I don't know how much you want to share and feel free to share or not share whatever you do, but can, I'm gonna, I'm gonna what, 
after seven years, sort of like what what led to to you realizing yeah. you're seeking help or, or that diagnosis happening? Yeah. I mean, it was you know I didn't really drink a lot. I I drank a lot in high school. Again, I, I was I was very depressed. I had a lot of anxiety in high school, and I used that to feel okay. Mm-hmm. So I kind of stopped drinking in Ranger Regiment, which is good. <laughs> you know, like that's a good time to not be drinking, in my opinion, because that means when I got back, I didn't really drink a lot. But I, I had my antenna up all the time. I was, I was very paranoid. I did not want to be out. I would go out to eat with my wife, and there would be like fans in the ceiling, and it would just freak me out. I'd mm-hmm. be like, I don't want to drive. I don't want to do this. You know, I, I'd, oh, I have to go out with a big knife on me. You know what I mean? And then I was just like seeing, you know, people at bars or social establishments that you go to. I I would always, I feel like I would always catch the eye of somebody who wanted trouble. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, I am, I'm going to find trouble, even though I'm not drinking and not looking for it. So it was just like, I totally disengaged from society. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, and I, you know, my wife, again, she's, there's, there's a common theme and then my wife is very smart. <laughs> And she had kind of been like, Hey, like, will you talk to somebody, you know, like, will you talk to somebody? And eventually my buddy from second bat came to visit us in 2015 and we were all talking and he's like, yeah, I got diagnosed with it. He's like, you need to go too. You got it. And I was like, and my wife then was like, you need to go Ross. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so it was just like, it was just like one of those things where it's like, again, you don't realize it. Yeah. For me, it just seemed like that's normal. Like I, I, I liked, I liked, um, I liked being out. I liked seeing people. I liked the possibilities of social dynamics before. And when I came back, I saw threats. I saw unhappiness. I was, I was no longer stimulated by being out. I was very on edge. I could not calm down. I was always looking at people's bodies for weapons. I was, an, a woman would come in on a public transportation i'd be like is that a woman or is it a man and it's not like psychosis it's just like you can't turn it off right you know what i mean and so like for me it was just it was just heady in that way um and uh again like i've always been prone to depression and anxiety Mm -hmm. so like again like am i really going to be able to see what was really going on probably not but eventually to answer your question dave it was like my buddy from second bat and my wife told me you need to go see somebody mm-hmm. and then i remember when i went to the va you know they were asking me questions and eventually i was like holy shit i'm here for ptsd aren't i and i remember like telling her and she was really sweet really nice very calm and nice and again like i didn't feel stigmatized at all i stigmatized myself right you know what i mean and i remember telling her like, i don't want this mm-hmm. i told her that. i was like i don't want it. i was like yeah but it's not something you bought in return <laughs> Right. That's not what it is. It's like you got it, dude. Right. You know what I mean? Like, and um, and then when I when I, I remember when I drove back from that appointment, I, I felt a lot lighter because it it was almost like maybe I knew something wasn't right in me, and maybe maybe it just kind of took somebody else telling me, "Hey, it's not normal to see certain things that you saw, and if you had an adverse reaction to it, don't even look at it as adverse. Just say, yeah, that's not normal." Right now what and then just let it go there right now what you know right. and again that's why i kind of came to the thing it's like 
my my morality or my heart revolted to certain things that weren't cool. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? To certain things that if my kids were to see it, I'd be like, come here, give me a hug. You know what I mean? You all right? Like, I love you. Like, are you okay? Things I don't want them to see or be a part of. And now mm-hmm. I say that happened or I was a part of certain things. So it's okay for me to be like, yeah, I can I can be like a gnarly dude and still be like, yeah, that's that's pretty fucked up. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that's not okay. You know? And so it was just a, re- a, a progression for myself. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know if that answers the question, Dave. No, it did. <laughs> no. Thank you. No, it did. There was no, there was no like coming to Jesus moment for me. I'm not religious. So it was just like, I listen to my wife and I listen to people that are courageous enough to, to tell me they care about me and they're worried about me. Yeah. You know? And that's the thing I think people have to realize is like, I remember like Sergeant Shannon took his life and he was, he, he, to me, he was a badass. Like he was not in my platoon, but he was just this dude who just looked like, you, you just, you see him like you're a ranger. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and he took his life. And so it's like, dude, people are going through stuff. Mm-hmm. And it, it's not like, it's not like you look a certain way and can say, oh, that person can or cannot handle it. Mm-hmm. It's like everybody has a different threshold for everything. Right. And if you hit if you hit your threshold, you hit your threshold. Right. And it's nothing against you. You know what I mean? It's just that's where you're at. It's right. your height. You right. can't become six foot six if you're five foot ten. Right. You know what I mean? Like that's the thing, you know. So it's, um, it's such yeah. an individual thing too, right? What triggers one yeah. person might not trigger another person, but they might have a yeah. t- totally different you know, it's not a universal sort of if this happens to you or if you go through this, right. this is how you're going to feel. So you, right. So everybody has their own personal narrative that's equally valid right. when it comes to something like that. Yeah. And, and again, it's like, you know, you might, you might have had seven deployments and you might not have saw what I saw. Mm-hmm. So don't even, don't even talk about that shit. Right. You know what I mean? Because right. maybe I take you and see what I saw and you get worse than I do. Right. You know what I mean? Like right. so that's the whole thing is like, there's, there's always like a, a sizing up contest anyway in the military. So the second that that starts happening with like trauma in it, it's just like, no, don't even listen to it, dude. That yeah. is not a conversation worth having with anybody. If there's anything but support from people, see ya. doesn't yeah. matter. Cause like, what, what are they going to do? They're going to take 10 years to unwind anyway. You know what I mean? And then they will have it. You know what I mean? It's like, I, I think it's, I think it's something that more people should just try to think on and say, am I happy? If, if you're not okay, well, don't you want to be happy? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, don't you want to be a good dad? Mm-hmm. Don't you want to be a good husband, a good friend, somebody, you know, like, that's the thing. It's like, there's so much insecurity in people to begin with. And then not going to war brings out certain insecurities or going to war and not seeing combat brings out insecurity. It's like, everybody's going to get insecure about something. And so if you're, if you're, if you're having a hard time about it, just like, Hey, I'd, it's like, if you need, if you need to go on a diet or you need a workout plan, just go for it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, are you like calling me fat? More, yeah. You know what I mean? But No, but you're, no, you know what I mean? Um, I don't know. I think, I think it's it's a lot easier to just be a good person and try to be a lot more gentle, especially ironically, if you've done hard things and seen hard things and, and had like a harder persona for a while, it feels good to be like, I don't necessarily need that. I can be 
a good person and more interesting or more unique by being gentle or soft or kind. I don't have to have that, you know, like persona I, I think, anymore. I, yeah. I, th I think, no, that's absolutely right. And I, I think one of the things that, you know, we, we all struggle with this as, you know, the special ops community, if you will, is that our public persona is that we're these big badasses. But then if you look at the statistical breakdown of, of uh, our suicide rates, which are much higher than average, the, right. these two narratives don't really mesh up. I mean, if you're the biggest badasses right. in the world, it, it does not make sense that you're killing yourself in, in these high rates. Right. Um, now, I'm right. not saying that you can't be a badass. What I'm saying is that you're a badass dude. Like You should also, as you said, go and get help if you need it um, because right. there's more going on beneath the surface than just the persona. Right. And it, and then you're obviously you're probably right. But I think it's just like you have to look at what you're thinking as weakness as just something that's misunderstood. Mm -hmm. It's not a weakness. Right. Like you think about it, like if like how many guys in whatever unit you're with were totally obsessed with any deficiency physically and they would go spend all this time in the gym to iron that out or sculpt this body part. Like, yeah, but if I told you your mind wasn't quite there yet or you had a, wouldn't you want to change that too? So it doesn't make any sense. If you look at it as something that you can improve and get better with, it doesn't make any sense to not try to do that. Right. You know what I mean? And so that's the kind of thing you kind of have to look at it is almost like, well, it's a workout regime. Like start doing stuff that's going to help you feel better. You know what I mean? Because you can't hide it. You're just going to, you're just going to bring it out by being an asshole to other people, by being standoffish by being an alcoholic, by being, you know, over aggressive, by being somebody that other people don't want to be around. You know what I mean? So is that what you want? Because you're afraid of kind of confronting something that you know is there anyway, and you're trying to hide from it. It doesn't make any sense I, to me. You know? I don't, I mean, I don't necessarily think that it's always that like guys are trying to avoid it and, and, you know, want to, put on an air yeah. or not face up to it. I think that, you know, a lot of the people that are successful in special operations are successful because they've learned to drive through problems, right? They've learned to suck it up yeah. and they've learned to like, yeah. you know, tighten up those rock straps, pop their head and just keep yeah. on driving. And right. I think that a lot of people who get mired in post-traumatic stress try that same approach. Yeah. And, oh, for sure. and yeah. it's not that it's not that necessarily that they're uh, like uh, trying to pretend anything so much as they're trying right. to solve that problem the way that every every it's always worked before. And I think well, yeah, the other, yeah. yeah, and I think the other nefarious sort of insidious thing about post-traumatic stress is like you didn't know you were in it when no, you were in it, it, right? right? Mm -hmm. It took people from the outside mm -hmm. and more than just your wife, it took somebody who had a shared experience with you going, check this yeah, out. You have it. Right? Yeah, you have it. Yeah. And, right, right. Yeah. and so I think that, like I said, I think that post-traumatic stress can be really insidious because I think that a mm -hmm. lot of people caught in the throes of it aren't even aware of it. You know, it's this. No, I think you're, it's a great point. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And so if we're going to talk about actionable stuff now and not just, uh, that's what I think we need to be doing. I think we need to be talking about what to do about that and how to make it better for guys. Yeah. I personally think that there should be a drive to have social workers, um, not necessarily psychs, but probably social workers embedded with units and have them go through the training the same way medics do. Because what should be normal is when you do your debrief, they like, okay, we got this guy, we got this guy, we got this, say, hey, how you doing? 
You're right with that? That was kind of fucked up. You see that? Mm-hmm. That didn't happen at all. You know what I mean? It was like, you just go do it and then you go do whatever you do. You know, at least for me at times, you know. And so if you kind of normalize talking about stuff after it happens as soon as possible in the same way that you have to in the sense of a debrief, it makes sense that you start to get people to say, hey, I wasn't really comfortable with that. Is this cool? Or if not in that way, at least just get guys talking about what's going on. Right. Because again, it's that, yes, you're right, Dave, when you're probably talking about, yeah, it's something if they realize it or not, they nevertheless can drive through it. But it's almost like, well, maybe they're going to start realizing more if they start talking about right. what happened or what they saw or what they don't like or right. what they're feeling. Because without that kind of repetition, you can't even realize your ankle's hurting if right. you aren't looking at what's hurting your body and listening to your body. You know what I mean? Right. But yeah, you're right. Because again, it's you also have to have that that mentality that you are training for it. So you should not have a problem with anything. Um, and so it's kind of hard because everybody's different. You yeah, know what I mean, yeah. um, and again, for me, it took seven years for me to get out, feel like I was doing great and I didn't have any problems. And then it was like, <laughs> whoa, you know, I haven't seen my friends in like six years. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I literally like years have gone by where I see my friends once or twice. Right. You know what I mean? And I'm like, yeah, I just, I guess that's depression, isn't it? <laughs> or I guess that's anxiety, right? Where you just say no to everything. Right. Like, no, nah, I'm good, man. No, I'm good. You know, I mean, it's sad. It's hard to put your finger on it. You know? Yeah. Ross, but, tell us, uh, tell us what your book is about and where people can find it. Um, so my book is, is called the knife. Um, and I basically just wanted to, again, I kind of felt like a journalist. I didn't really even feel, I, I, I felt like a journalist now. I didn't feel like a journalist when I was writing it or when I was at war, but I guess I looked at my experience as more of a journalist. So what I wanted to really do with the book was kind of, take people on a, a deployment. That was it. I just wanted you to be like, Hey, this is what it was like for me. And that's kind of it. And I, I didn't want, I didn't want it to be like Hollywood. I wanted it to be gritty and raw. Um, one of the reviews said it wasn't literary and I was like, I don't care. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like that was, I didn't, I didn't like set out to write something that was really like canonical or whatever you want to say. It's like, <laughs> I, I set out to, to write something that I, I wanted my kids to read if in case I die early and can't tell them what it was like mm-hmm. so that they don't grow up thinking that war is some sweet thing that they're going to go taste. Mm-hmm. I wanted them to know what's gnarly about it what's good about it, what's exciting about it and scary about it. And I felt like, I felt like I hadn't read something like that as much before. Definitely not about the war I was in. So like, you know, I was like, I'm going to go do that. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, you can get it anywhere. It, it, the Amazon bookstores have it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, again, I just, I just wanted people to to read it and not feel good. <laughs> That's, I mean, like, I some of the the some of the most helpful reviews are the ones like, "This book's too depressing." And I'm like, "Well, I, there I, you go." <laughs> I, I, I have a, I have a copy of it on my shelf, Ross, and I'm sorry that I have not read it. Uh, we, we read the books oh. of our guests like 95 percent of the time, but sometimes, it, sometimes it's on such short notice, uh, we don't have time. And- so I will, oh I'll line it up though. And just so you guys know, like one of our guests had to drop, you know, unfortunately, uh, he'll be with us in the future. Um, but 
Ross like Rogered up. Like Yeah, Rangered up. Rangered up. Um, yeah, and jumped in. Like. Yeah, so we really appreciate you. <laughs> let's, uh, oh, yeah, no, my pleasure. Let's take some, uh, we got some viewer questions and comments here for you, Ross. Uh, oh, okay, I didn't know that. Uh, Ep, Ep made some donation here. Thank you, man. Uh, it, and it will, it'll buy one tenth of a bottle of this. So, Tass, thank you, Ep. Tacit is asking us, making a guest request. Um, I'll, I'll look into it, man. Uh, M. Tachenik, uh, Muckter. Uh, El Sader has come back out into the news again. What trajectory do you see this following? I, I'm not aware. I, I'm I, not sure. Either. Yeah, he, I try not. He might to. be uh, next PM. Yeah. yeah oh yeah. yeah. Well, there you go. Iran Iran hard at work there. Yeah. Uh, Jackson says, uh, "How would you characterize the differences between the different CT units you've worked with, from CAG to Dev Group to HRT, and it, was there any sort of rivalry between any of you guys?" So I worked with SEAL teams and Air Force PJs. So I didn't work with green or with um, any HRT elements. Um, I think I think there's usually a rivalry. I mean, that's just how you're going to get that within battalion. You know, <laughs> like you get that within squads. That's just that's just human beings. Yeah. Um, in terms of different capabilities, one thing I realize is like everybody's capable in their own way. And everybody's good at different stuff and then you'll see other guys that maybe are not so it's just like it's too hard to, and it's too hard to paint everybody with a broad brush you know what i mean um i think everybody's unique even if they're all serving in one unit you know what i mean so um yeah uh it's ja it's too diverse to say jackson asks uh on the subject of overexposure in combat and over aggression do you think soft at large should impose combat deployment limits for rangers or operators uh, that's a good question. Probably not because you'd be losing a lot of really good guys. I do think that you need to have a hell of a lot more um, insight into what guys are going through, what they're seeing, what they are doing on deployments. Um, yeah, I mean, again, no. Like, if you've got the best guys out there, you need the best guys out there. But if they're not the best guys out there, I think it's more of a question to say, well, how do you identify that? Mm -hmm. How do you, how do you identify the guys that shouldn't be out there anymore? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's the kind of thing I think that needs to be kind of spoken to more. Cause again, like there's a lot of guys that could do it 10, 15 times and be okay mm -hmm. and be good people and good human beings. <laughs> I mean, but maybe not. So it's kind of that thing, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, Medi wizard says, I also got med boarded, but from the pilot pipeline for hearing, Crazy hearing you share that your experience. Mine was similar. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. My uh, pleasure. Sorry you went through that. Yeah. Uh, K-Jam, do you work with the Center for Deployment Psychology by any chance? They have a CPT PTSD protocol. You would be amazing working with other survivors considering your unique direct experience. Uh, no, I do not, but I'll look them up because that sounds really cool, and thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. Uh, books by Lieutenant Colonel Grossman are something I wish I read before basic training and podcasts like and Jocko uh, I wish existed when I first got out. Uh, well, we, oh, when he first got out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the things that is beneficial is, is, you know, shows like this and Jocko and all the other shows where guys are coming on and talking about their experiences and, and, so maybe the guys out there that are isolating are like realizing, oh, you know, like I, I'm not unique in this. I'm not alone in this. Oh, no, 
You know? Not at all, man. Like they, they, I don't think, I don't think I'm unique at all in any way. Like I, I, I did what I did. I wrote a book, and I don't think I'm unique at all. I think there's a lot more people like me than not. <laughs> you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. We think like, you're unique. I, I think it's. Uh, well, I think you. it's. Yeah. I think it's really good though, Ross. When someone like you comes forward, when someone like uh, Tom Spooner, who is an operator and deployed like twelve times, and he's a badass guy, but he came forward and said, "Like, hey, I have this. I deal with this. This is a real thing." And I think yeah. that that helps a lot of the younger guys out there uh, give themselves permission to go and, and seek treatment. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. I mean, you just got to be real with yourself. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that name is question anything or question everything. That this, the I, I think the the Chinese is question everything. Okay. Yeah. And Brad, thanks, man. It's <laughs> a good thing. Yeah, yeah, uh, the, yeah. His name were I was I believe his Chinese character, so I'm not sure. Uh, Brad, uh, did you go through treatment for PTSD, and what about it worked for you? Did I? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I was diagnosed with I was diagnosed with seventy percent PTSD. I went through um, like the social work program that they have for that. Um, I think it was helpful. The problem with PTSD is it's different for everybody. Mm -hmm. So again, it's gonna it's gonna kind of factor into not just not just what you're kind of looking at for like treatment, but what changes are you implementing after it mm -hmm. that are gonna either keep you on a path or make you go back. You know, a lot of it's like environmentally based. Mm -hmm. um, for me. When I do like tips and tricks real quick, that's good. Uh, one of the things that I really enjoyed doing was in by myself, I started shadow boxing. So like, I'm not, don't go out and start getting in fights. But to me, the feeling of kind of fighting back against feeling weak helped a lot. So what I would do was I would turn on the English Premier League soccer and I would for the whole first half, because it's 45 minutes straight, I would just box. You know, just myself in a room. And after that, you feel good. Mm -hmm. So find something that you can do consistently workout wise and do it, even if it's walking or whatever. And then uh, mindfulness stuff helps a lot. Breathing works really well. Um, sometimes you need medication. I've, I've used a couple different medications. Um, it's just one of those things where I would highly suggest not using recreational substances to cope you know thc was something i used for a long time until you know my wife was like hey this isn't working for you anymore which really meant hey this isn't working for me anymore mm -hmm. and i was like okay i hear you you know what i mean um but yeah stay away from that stuff if you can if you're gonna do it try to make sure that you're using it um in a responsible manner and not leaning on it like a crutch because there's actual medications that you're supposed to use it for for a crutch not that stuff um it's different for everybody though uh again try to not look at it as a weakness trying to look at it as more like a like you said question everything try to try to look at it like you're trying to figure yourself out you know what i mean this isn't a weakness you're trying to iron out and get a better marathon time you know what i mean try to look at it like that you know um it's really helpful to uh breathe in for four seconds hold your breath for eight seconds release it for 12 seconds do stuff like that you know what I mean? You need to start breathing and paying attention to breathing through your nose and not out your mouth. So you go like this. Try to not breathe out of your mouth anymore. You, A lot of people that smoke cigarettes find it helpful, 
but it's not the nicotine. The nicotine gets you going. What's helping them is they're taking deep breaths uh-huh. when they inhale. That's what's calming. They're taking deep breaths when they inhale. So breathing helps a lot. Try to calm down stuff. Uh, painting helps. Writing helps. Uh, eating healthy helps. Um, I, w- I would say have kids, but <laughs> I don't think that helps. Uh, I think that helps with perspective. Um, just, yeah, I don't know. Just take care of yourself. Yeah. And however you define it, you know. So tell tell yeah. us where you are today. I mean, you mentioned you have five kids, you're married, uh, yeah. you're in a PhD yeah. program. I mean, what what is, yeah. where, where does life find for us today? Um, so I work in a financial trading firm. I do the night shifts from 4.30 to midnight. Uh, I work with algorithmic traders. Um, I, I watch all of their trades. I basically manage our portfolio when it's going on. And in addition to that, I'm at the University of Alabama getting my PhD in communication studies. Um, I want to kind of focus on interpersonal communications. So how we talk to people, why we talk to them. Um, and I'm kind of trying to figure out like a notion of like capability, like why certain people will try things and other people will not. Mm-hmm. Why people believe in themselves and other people don't. Like, cause I look at the themes in my life and anything that I've accomplished, I've done it doubting myself. So I'm kind of wondering why that is, <laughs> you know, I, I have a, oh, like I have a brand on my forearm and it's the letters NQ because before I went to rip, I branded NQ into my arm, never quit as if I needed like a reminder that I was <laughs> like not going to let myself quit. But it's like, why am I built that way when the guy next to me might never doubt himself for a second? Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm trying to kind of unravel that stuff. Um, I, I would like to, to work in that capacity at some point, uh, however I can. Um, that's where you'll find me right now. Um, I'm not sleeping a whole lot, but that's pretty much every parent. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm a lucky person. I feel good uh, to be alive. I feel good to have a wife who thinks I'm good enough to stay with. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. That's where I'm at right now. I don't know where I'm going to be. I didn't think I was going to live to be this old. I'm 34. <laughs> I know that's not old, but I thought I was going to die at like 23, 21. Yeah, we all do. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. Right. So like, and that's the thing. It's like, Hey, hold on, man. Just stay for a while. You know, you've got, you've got, you've got things to do until you don't, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? There's a saying, it's like quit tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Don't quit today. Right. Quit tomorrow. You know what I mean? And then tomorrow just keeps going. You know what I mean? And it's just like, it's a good thing. You know what I mean? Is, uh, is there another Ross ritual novel in the future? Do you think you have another one in you somewhere? I don't know. I mean, everybody's, I'm not everybody. I've never really given a shit, but, um, <laughs> you know, people have, have been like, Oh, you should write a sequel. I'm like, well, that, that wrote itself. That's probably out. Um, I, I wrote a novel, um, about the civil war and I've written a novel about native Americans that haven't gotten picked up and probably won't, whether they're shit or whatever. I don't know. Uh, I'm doing a lot of academic writing right now, and I got an MA in journalism. So whether or not the writing continues, it certainly does. In what capacity it will, I don't know yet. Um, I really love writing. I think writing is really important, and I think that I uh, I think that I'm supposed to write in different ways. So if there's going to be a novel, I don't know, but there's definitely going to continue to be content, and it'll just be you know finding that and figuring out what to do. I mean, yeah. it, it sounds like you have the perfect audience for a children's book. 
I I would say so. You know, my wife is is getting into that. She's uh she's very creative herself, so she'll probably be on bookshelves for that. But yeah, I think everything I would say is extremely applicable to children. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's awesome. Yeah. We have two more questions just came up. Um, Isaac yeah. asks, "Is there a good stock to invest in?" Right, Th- that's now? probably illegal to answer that question. <laughs> I I would say the best advice I heard is don't take anybody's advice. There you so go. you should do your own research. Um, and then, yeah, that's all I'll say. <laughs> Except for deep fucking value. He nailed it pretty well. But anyway, and then uh, he's the guy that nailed the game stock uh, or the game shop uh, or the game. Yeah. Uh, and Jen, uh, Gene Colley said, Kyle Carpenter observed that everyone has trauma. We can bridge a lot of divides if we start granting each other space and support to heal. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And uh, again, it, and I think just checking in with yourself is important. Be like, hey, am I a happy person? Like, ask yourself that. And if you can't really say, yeah, be like, well, that's not a good thing. Well, maybe figure it out a little bit. You don't have to tell other people. Like, I'm very open about it because I've been through it and I've had book talks where that kind of content comes out. And so I kind of feel like when I do a talk like this, that's the stuff I should be talking about because that's the stuff that people that need to hear it like I needed to hear it, will pick up their ears more. You know what I mean? So you don't have to talk to other people about it. You don't have to do what I'm doing. Be like, hey, man, I have this and that. That's the conscious choice I make because I know there's at least one person listening or reading or maybe going to read it in a year. To be like, oh, well, I kind of have that because I know that I was that person. So I would have, I, I kind of look at it as being like, if I can do what I needed, it's going to find somebody eventually. So you don't have to broadcast it. You don't have to like be like, I'm a survivor of this. Like, don't do that if you don't want to, but you should be doing that by yourself. In my yeah. opinion. Especially if you've got people in your life that will be affected by anything that you're not addressing. Yeah. That's my opinion. And yeah. uh, it reminds me of that. Uh, was it Philo? Uh, Philo who said, be kind. Everybody you meet is fighting a hard battle. Yeah, and that's I don't know if that's I don't know if that's who said it, but it doesn't matter because that's incredibly apt. And that's that's true and it's important. And I think our society, especially right now, as divided as everybody is, it's just like we 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 start, you know, assigning a lot of things to people pretty quickly. And I think that you should ask why you're doing that. Like maybe if you're really a person that's kind of getting aggravated a lot. It might not be other people. Maybe you got to figure some stuff out in your life. No, Maybe it's definitely other people. <laughs> yeah, I right, know. It's, it's, not, it's not everybody. It's, it's, right. Those it's, assholes it's, in New York. This, right, is, uh, right. this has been an awesome conversation. I really appreciate appreciate you coming and spending yeah, some time with us. deeply appreciate it. Tonight, Ross. Yeah, man, um, yeah. I hope that everyone out there will go and check out The Knife by Ross Richel. It's on Amazon and wherever else books are sold. You can find it. There's a link to it down in the description. And... Uh, Otherwise, thank you for joining us tonight and and checking out the show. Uh, Please leave us a comment. Let us know how we're doing. Give us a little thumbs up or thumbs down. Uh, Check the links down there. There's a link uh, to our uh, Patreon if you want to have access to the bonus segments and and extra episodes we do. There's also a link to our merch, the uh, coffee mugs and T-shirts. I always forget to mention it, but that's down there as well. And uh, rate the podcast on uh, iTunes. It helps. Yeah. Give us some love. And give Ross some love. We really appreciate it, man. We love you. Next episode. Thank you. you. Next episode is going to be uh, Douglas London, career CIA officer. He is the author of The Recruit. We're going to have him on next Friday. 
So thank you, everyone, and uh, we'll catch With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.